Then I heard a loud voice from the temple. Notice that we left off with uh, the temple and this tent back in 15.5. It was a tent. Now it's a temple. Those images are interchangeable. A loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who, the people who, bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every, not a fourth, not a third, Every living thing uh, that was in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they're demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. If you have a red letter Bible, you notice this is in red. So the translators are saying to you that their interpretation is Jesus speaking. I'm coming like a thief. And you may notice, just a small rabbit trail, back in verse 5, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. Other verses in Revelation describe him as the one who is and who was and who is to come. But in the context of Revelation, when Jesus is in the act of coming back, he's only described as the one who is and who was. Because his coming is not in the future, it's happening in the present in that vision. So, verse 5, he is and he was. And verse 15, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. 
And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So that's Revelation 16. Starts off with a loud voice from the temple. I think that we're to take that as the voice of God calling for the final judgment. Loud voice from the temple calling the angels, go pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. I think he's calling for the final judgment. So in your notes, I gave you a little chart. Um, I'm not going to walk you through that. It's just the, the bowls and the plagues and the reference and uh, description of the judgment for you to see in that sort of format. Uh, Schreiner has a couple of quotes, one from his commentary on Revelation, one from a book called The Joy of Hearing. This is what I want to emphasize with these two quotes. He says, this destruction is universal. He thinks that it's poured out at the end of history. I would agree with that. Unlike the seals and the trumpets, this is comprehensive. It's complete. And it's something that's going to take place at or near the end of history. So I agree with him. As you read these judgments, the comprehensive nature of them, they're the last. And with them, the wrath of God is finished. He's talking about the final outpouring of God's wrath on those who dwell on the earth. This isn't just, here's what you can expect in between the ascension of Jesus and the return. This is a vision about this is how it's going to be when God finally and fully pours out his wrath on those who dwell on the earth. I gave you this couple of bullet points here, four plus three, three plus four. I don't think I really want to go into that. I'm just making the point that some scholars say the first four go together and the last three go together like with the seals and the trumpets. And other people think, I'm actually more convinced that this is a 3-4 pattern where the first three describe how those who dwell on the earth are going to respond or how God's people are going to respond and the last four describe how God's enemies are going to respond. So you can sort that out in how you want to group these bowls. Um, I just want to talk to you about each of the bowls and walk you through my view of what's being described here. Uh, Caveat, preface, warning. We may not all agree on this. And when you're teaching Revelation, you can't lay out every view or that's all you would do and you would never do any positive teaching. So I'm just going to give you what I think. And uh, if you want to kick it around later, we can do that. So number one, uh, bowl number one are sores. And I think this is likely a symbolic description of agony and anguish. Um, it's the sixth plague that God poured out on the Egyptians. If you go back and look at Exodus, uh, they had sores, boils on their skin. So it's the same sort of thing. And maybe it's literal, but I think it's likely symbolic in God pouring agony and anguish out on people. Uh, next, I'm going to group two and three together because it's the ocean and then it's all the fresh water gets turned to blood. I think it's likely a symbolic repayment for the persecution of the saints and the prophets this is sort of the idea that the punishment fits the crime because you read about bowl two and three all of this water turns to blood 
And then there's a song being sung. The angel in charge of the water says, after God has turned all this water to blood, the angel says, you're just, you're holy, you brought the judgments. Why? Verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you gave them blood to drink. They spilled the blood of your people, you've given them blood to drink. I don't think that that's a literal description I simply think that it's an apocalyptic description of God is going to give these people what they deserve. They persecuted his people in horrific ways. God will bring judgment on them and it will be horrific. They shed blood. God sends blood to them. And the conclusion in verse 6 is it's what they deserve. It's a shocking statement when you think about God pouring out his wrath on humanity. But the angel says this is what they deserve. So I like this quote from Mounts. Uh, The judgment of God is neither vengeful nor capricious. It's an expression of just, his just and righteous nature. All caricatures of God that ignore his intense hatred of sin reveal more about human nature than about God. This, This quote right here is worth the whole night showing up. In a moral universe, God must of necessity oppose evil. And this is the very small rabbit trail I'm going to take you down when, it, when you think about the Christian biblical worldview. People always try to criticize Christians because they believe in a God who's angry and wrathful and mean and grouchy and all the rest. You don't need to back down from those sorts of criticisms or be intimidated by them. God's not grouchy. He's not petty. He's not just doing something because he had a bad day. He doesn't just fly off the handle for no reason. But he is, and he must be in a moral universe, angry with sin. And we'll come back to that idea when we think about application of this passage. This is not a a weakness of the Christian worldview that we believe this. It's actually a strength. Because when you logically trace out the idea that there might be a God and he might not care about evil... That's horrific. That has horrific implications for any worldview. So this is good news, although it's heavy news. All right, four and five. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. The intensification of the sun and the darkness, four and five, are likely symbolic descriptions of God sending agony and anguish on those who dwell on the earth. So the sores are the sixth plague of Egypt. The water to blood, you see that in the first plague in Egypt. Uh, The stuff with the sun being affected is the ninth plague in Egypt. It's darkness um, in Egypt, number nine. And I just want you to notice there's a parallel between the first bowl. The first bowl is the sores, right? Look down at uh, the fifth one. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Its kingdom was plunged into darkness People gnawed their tongues in anguish. They cursed the God of heaven. Why? Because of the darkness? No, because of their sores. That's just kind of interesting. You would expect it to say they were angry at God because it was so dark. That was the fifth bowl. Darkness. But he pours out the darkness and the people are cursing because of their sores. And I don't think you take that literally. I just think it's the agony of people who are under the righteous 
holy judgment of God. And I think that's a parallel back to the first one. So I take that as a symbolic description again. Now notice, with the fourth and the fifth, verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. These people who live on the earth know that God is punishing them. And none of them repent. None of them repent. They curse God and they blaspheme God and they're in terrible agony and they're angry, but there's no repentance. And this is a key idea when you think about the concept of hell that people who are punished for their sins do not repent. God's judgment does not lead people to repentance. His kindness and His mercy and His grace leads people to repentance. But His judgment is simply executing what people deserve. That's what the angel says at the end of verse 6. This is what they deserve. And I'll just throw up Proverbs chapter 19 for your consideration. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. These people in their folly have come to ruin, absolute ruin. And they're not sorry, they're not contrite, they're not humble, they're not asking for forgiveness. They're just ticked off, angry, cursing God, blaspheming God. Uh, the Euphrates. The reference to the Euphrates and the frog spirits and the kings of the world and the battle of Armageddon, all that's number six. I think it's a symbolic description of God preparing to destroy the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. As I read that today, I'd already printed all your notes, so I didn't change it. It's not just that he's getting ready to destroy the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's also that he's getting ready to pour out final judgment on those who dwell on the earth. So this is a, a spiritual judgment and a human judgment taking place in this sixth bowl. And I promise you I'm going to explain that here in just a minute. We're going to come back to the Euphrates and Armageddon. I'm not going to leave you hanging on all that stuff. Uh, bowl number seven describes the final judgment, and it's very graphic. Um, it's very vivid. You'll notice uh, bowl number seven begins in verse 17. In verse 18, flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. That's kind of code in the book of Revelation. You've seen that grouping of words multiple times for the return of Jesus, right? When God descended on Sinai and met his people, when God came to earth and met his people at Sinai, lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. When that happens in the book of Revelation, in this recursive storytelling, going over the same material over and over and over again, uh, all the lightning, the rumblings, the peals of thunder, that's a code word for you to understand we've come to the end here. Uh, there's an earthquake, lots of earthquakes in Revelation, and I think they're typically describing God showing up in this final judgment taking place. Uh, there's a cup of wine of fury that Babylon has to drink, and we're going to come back to that uh, in a minute. Now, those are the bowls. It's entirely possible, I'll grant you, entirely possible that those are to be taken literally. That would be no violation of the standards of writing to say, no, there's going to be real sores and there's going to be real blood. I thought about this today because in Egypt, I really think that it means that when they turn the Nile to blood. I think that is what happened. I don't think it's just a symbolic picture of God judging Pharaoh. I think it happened. 
But I think in an apocalyptic book, the best way is not to take the images literally, but to take them seriously and to understand that John is just, in a sense, seeing this vision and grasping at straws and words to describe the horror of this judgment. Now, what I want to do with the, the rest of our time before we get to application, I want to talk about some of these images. And we're going to go through these kind of quick. Uh, I have given you some quotes in here just to think about. But I want to explain some of these images in bowl 6 and 7. Because that's where the vision really kind of gets weird and there's some, some odd things that you may have questions about. So first of all, there's a reference to the Euphrates River and it gets dried up. Okay, Isaiah and Jeremiah, looking to the exile and the return of God's people in the Old Testament, they prophesy in prophetic language about a day when rivers will be dried up and God's enemies will be judged. So this is, this is all I'm saying to you. When John says a river is going to get dried up, He's not the first person in the Bible to use that imagery. And when he says a river is going to be dried up so that judgment can be meted out on God's people, that's been talked about before in the Old Testament. John's pulling from the Old Testament in these references. And I agree with Beale when he says just like Babylon has been universalized and become symbolic, so the Euphrates can't be a literal geographic reference to the Euphrates River. So, he talks about Babylon in here, but you understand in the first century there really was no Babylon. There was Rome, but he doesn't talk about Rome. He talks about Babylon. Babylon becomes this symbol for human opposition to God. It goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, goes to Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, and it becomes a symbol or a picture of human opposition to God. And I think all of these place names function in that same way. You don't take them literally, but you take them seriously. He talks about kings from the east and kings of the whole world. Uh, there is a scholar named John Walford. He was a DTS guy, a dispensational guy from Dallas Theological Seminary. And in his commentary, when he talks about the kings of the east and the kings of the whole world, he lists out 50 different scholarly opinions about who these kings are, meaning at one point, someone said, it's the Holy Roman Empire. I know it. It's got to be the Holy Roman Empire. At one point, they said, it's got to be the Turks. Guaranteed. Hands down. Uh, I promise you, it's the Afghans. It's the Afghans coming from the east. I promise you, it's China. Their flag is red. What more proof do you need? It's China. They're coming. It's Russia. I guarantee you, it's Russia. It's Saddam Hussein. It's Nomar Gaddafi. He's going to make a big loop around, and he's in the West, but he's going to come from the East. People have grasped at straws to figure out who these kings are forever. I agree with Guthrie and Poitras. Don't think about modern geopolitical uh, entities. Don't think about particular national armies, but understand that these kings and their armies represent God's enemies. They represent those who dwell on the earth, and do not waste your time coming up with the 51st interpretation of, well, it must be Iran. Surely it's Iran or whoever you think it might be. Now, you go to the Christian bookstore, you can find 8,000 books. And right there on the cover, it'll tell you, 
oh, it's this guy, it's this nation, it's this king. So people have been grasping at that straw for a long time. Uh, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. That's the unholy trinity we met in chapter 13 and 14. In 13 and 14, it was the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. And now the beast from the land is not called the beast from the land. He's called the false prophet. And he's called the false prophet for the rest of the book. Back when he was the beast from the land, he functioned as a false prophet. So that's not really a, a change in the imagery here. And uh, so that's Satan and the Antichrist figure. If you want to see the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, this is the kind of place you would look to see him. This ultimate figure, uh, beast from the sea and the false prophet, um, this unholy trinity uh, opposing God. And they belch out of their mouth demon frogs, which is one of the weirdest images in the whole book. They open their mouth and out come, uh, how does he say it? Out come three unclean spirits like frogs. And there's all this horrific judgment in this chapter, blood, all the water's blood, everything's dead, and this stuff is crazy. And then you got frogs, and you think, I mean, Sam's here, so he's got his TCU stuff on. I mean, the fr killer frogs and all that stuff, but not trying to knock your mascot, but you kind of think, you couldn't come up with anything scarier than frogs, like dragons or uh, frogs. Comes up with frogs. Um, Exodus 8. That was one of the signs in Egypt. And it was one of the signs that Pharaoh's magicians were able to reproduce. So there was deception tied up. There's all these plagues go back to Egypt. The parallels are all back to the early chapters of Exodus. So now it's the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and the frogs are coming out of their mouth. And John just straight up tells you, you don't have to wonder that these are demonic spirits. What are these frogs coming out of their mouth, these frog spirits? They're demonic spirits, and they're involved in deception, and they're trying to lead people away. Um, Mark Wilson, I think, has a helpful quote. The second plague on the Egyptians was frogs. Uh, the Egyptians duplicated the miracle. The same deception employed by the magicians is now operating out of the mouths of the unholy trinity. So I gave you a reference to uh, 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. Paul talks about in the last days, and the Thessalonians passage especially is in the context of the end and the return of Jesus. In the last days, people will be given over to the teaching of demons. So just, I'm, I want you to think how John wants you to think in Revelation. These frogs come from where? Out of the mouth. You remember back in Revelation 12, 13, 14, this unholy trinity spits a river out of its mouth to destroy the people. And you think, why a river? Why coming out of the mouth? It's false teaching coming out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Um, you see it in some of the previous images with the trumpets that these demonic beasts that come have sulfur that comes out of their mouth. And people come up with all kinds of art, sulfur, flames, all this stuff. It was talking about the poisonous, destructive, false teaching that comes out of somebody's mouth. And it's all contrary to the vision of Jesus at the beginning of the book who has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this unholy trinity is just mimicking the true trinity at every step. And they don't have a sharp two-edged sword, but they've got frogs and they've got a river and they've got sulfur and it's just a cheap knockoff 
uh, every step of the way. There's a battle on the great day. I think it's the same battle described in Revelation 20. So I think at this point in the book, John begins to describe this final judgment from different perspectives. So he's given us a camera angle with the uh, the bowls, and he's going to give us a different camera angle in 17 and 18 with Babylon being destroyed. He's going to give us a different angle in chapter 19 when Jesus comes back on a white horse and he's going to destroy his enemies. It's just the same thing being described uh, from a different perspective. And uh, I think the quote here from Beale is helpful in that. Uh, I want you to note there's a blessing uh, in this passage. There are, not surprisingly, seven blessings in the book of Revelation, and this is the third one. And the blessing is, pay attention, stay awake, don't fall asleep. And it's not talking about don't take a nap, don't go to bed early. It's saying spiritually you have to be alert, watch out for the beast, watch out for the false prophet, watch out for this destructive poison that comes out of their mouths. You have to be vigilant and you have to be aware. And I would make the small point, I'm trying not to be too tacky about this as we go through Revelation, but the warning here is to stay awake because Jesus is coming like a thief. Jesus gives that warning not to his enemies but to his people. He's giving the warning to his people. And we're right here before the end and presumably his people are on the earth and they've not all been raptured out and snuck out and they're just watching from heaven all of this unfold. But they're there on earth going through it. And he's saying to them, you better watch out. You better stay awake. You better pay attention. You better keep your clothes on. You better be ready for the bridegroom to come back. Because once he comes back, that's it. So be ready. He's coming back like a thief. Now, the big question. Armageddon. Or literally, har Okay. Notice what John says. In verse 18, they assembled at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Um, why English translations don't put Armageddon, I don't know. But the Hebrew word and the Greek transliteration of that word is Har-Mageddon. Har is the Hebrew prefix or word for mountain. And Megiddo is an Old Testament place. So literally what John is saying is they are gathering at the mountain of Megiddo, Harmageddon, okay? Now let me show you a map and then some pictures. This is this little box right here. This shows you Egypt and Babylon where all these sort of world powers are. And this is Israel, this little postage stamp right here in the middle. And right up here is where Megiddo is. Jerusalem is way down south and Sea of Galilee Caesarea, Nazareth, all that stuff. Megiddo's right over here. Now, here's the funny thing about Megiddo, because John says it's in Hebrew, they're coming to Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo, okay? There are no mountains at Megiddo. It's a plain and it's a valley. And you can look at these pictures. There it is. Now, you're looking at that top picture and you're like, well, I see some mountains back there. Those aren't Megiddo. Those little tiny hills have their own names, and they're not Megiddo. This flat place out in the middle, that's Megiddo. It's not a mountain. So I did some online snooping around because I'm curious what people are going to say about this. And what there is in the middle of this plain is this raised up thing that archaeologists call a tell. 
And a tell is basically a mound where there was a city and someone destroyed it and they built on top and someone destroyed it and they built on top and someone destroyed it and they built on top. And now it's this mound where there's been five different cities that have all been destroyed. And it's not a mountain, it's this little bitty tell. And some people say, well, that's the mountain. That's the mountain of Megiddo is that little tell. But it's not a mountain. It's not even close to a mountain. And everyone reading it in John's day would have known Megiddo's not a mountain. Megiddo's a plain. We don't know Middle Eastern geography, so we hear Armageddon and we think, oh, that sounds exciting. Going to be a big fight. All these guys are going to get together. They're going to point their tanks up at the sky. They're going to try to blow Jesus out of the sky. People come up with these wild ideas. But John is saying something that if you know the geography is ridiculous, it would be like me saying to you, hey, on Saturday... I want you to meet me at the mountains of Monahans. You'd be like, is he talking about the sand hills? I don't know. Are those mountains? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to walk up them. It's hard to walk up a mountain. It's hard. What's he talking about? Is he talking about, I don't know. Is he talking about the dump you drive by on the way to Monahans? Is that the mountain? Like you would start saying, there are no mountains in Monahans. And for Jewish people, when he says, in Hebrew, in Hebrew, this place is called Har-Mageddon. Everyone thinks there's not a mountain there. So maybe, just maybe, he's not talking about an actual place. Maybe what he's describing is something symbolic. Now here's something interesting. This place right here was the site of a lot of battles. Because that's where armies like to fight battles in the ancient world. Not on mountains, but on wide open plains. Because you can line everybody up and you can get all your people in their units and you can move the pieces like you're playing a computer game today and that's where they like to have battles biblical battles and major non-biblical battles fought on this spot so everyone would know mountain of Megiddo there is no mountain in Megiddo but there was a lot of battles fought in Megiddo and what John's describing here in this vision is a final outpouring of God's wrath on his enemies and in using a place that was known for fighting and conflict and telling you it's a mountain when it's not, it's almost like John's winking at you when he says this. And I don't think you're to get all wrapped up in an actual place. Now, if you're going to Israel with us in the fall, I guarantee you they're going to drive us down this road and some little tour guide's going to say, right out here, this is where the final battle will be fought. Right out there, look at this. And you're going to say, man, I know more Hebrew than you do. There ain't no mountain out there. What in the world? But that's what they're going to tell you. That's the spot. There's going to be this battle. All these humans are going to try to kill Jesus, and it's going to happen right here. And I'm just telling you, I don't think that's what John is describing. So I gave you a lot of quotes, and I'm not going to read all these. Schreiner says John gave us a clue. Uh, Beale says it's like Babylon and the Euphrates and Armageddon. It's not talking about actual geography. Uh, Mounts, okay, here's something interesting. Mounts and Beal and Shriner, they, don't, they disagree a lot about the book of Revelation. They disagree about a lot of things. And all three of them are saying to you, I don't think John wants you to think about an actual place here. I don't think that's the point. Uh, Ramsey Michaels says, the strange name may have been chosen to deliberately signal that the place was imaginary, not real, and the great final, quote, battle would not be an actual battle at all. In any case, no battles described. This is really important. They assemble for battle, but there is no battle. 
And the same thing is described in circular nature in chapter 17 and 18, in chapter 19 and chapter 20. All these people keep assembling for battle, but there's no battle. Paul describes it to the Thessalonians and says, look, when Jesus comes back, he's going to destroy the Antichrist and all his cronies with the breath of his mouth. There's no battle. There's just destruction and God's wrath being poured out on those who dwell on the earth. So uh, Riddlebarger says the same thing. It's not a literal military battle, but it's apocalyptic imagery. Okay, moving on quickly. It's done, the seventh bowl. When you read that statement, it is done. You ought to think about Jesus on the cross saying what? It's finished. What's finished? Drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. He's dying as a substitute. And he drinks it and it's finished. And when John says here, this seventh angel poured out his bowl on the air and the loud voice says, it is done. What's done? The pouring out of this wrath is done with this final bowl. So there's a parallel there. Um, I'll let you chase out the Thessalonians and Revelation reference here. Uh, All these quotes I gave you are essentially saying this seventh bowl has taken you to the very, very end, and I'll let you sort through those. Uh, There's a great city, also known as Babylon the Great. I don't think that's a literal city. That shouldn't surprise you at this point. Babylon is the placeholder. It's the symbol for human opposition to God and human opposition to Jesus Uh, Essentially, it's the city of man. And if you trace it back to Revelation 11, where we talked about the two witnesses who you now know are St. Augustine and George Fox, the two witnesses, they lie dead in the great city, and John says, it's Sodom and it's Egypt. And if you know your geography, you know Sodom is not in Egypt. What's he saying? Well, this is human opposition to God, like what you saw in Sodom, like what you saw in Pharaoh and Egypt, like what you saw in Babylon, like what was happening in Rome in real time, like what you see in the world today. Human opposition to God is going to meet its end. That's the great city. Uh, There's no more mountains or islands. Um, I think that this imagery comes to fruition in Revelation 20 and 21. It's the idea that this created order is going to be unmade so that God can make it new. And it's, it's a shocking image to say the mountains run away and the islands run away. Like the very inanimate creation is horrified by the outpouring of God's wrath and they flee away from it. But in the end, God's going to make it all new. Last, the hailstones. John says it is a hundred pound hailstone. And I did some research this week. The largest hailstone that has ever fallen on earth that's been recorded fell in Vivian, South Dakota, 2010. It was about 8 inches across, and it weighed 1.9375 pounds. Not even 2 pounds. It was the largest hailstone that human beings have verified that fell. And John says these are going to be 100-pound hailstones. And I grant you, maybe that's literal. Maybe there's going to be Volkswagen Beetle-sized hailstones falling out of the sky. It's a horrific thought to think about that. If you've ever been in a hailstone, a hailstorm with baseball-sized hail, that's terrifying, much less a 100-pound hailstorm. I look at that number 100, and I say 100. It's a big, round number. 
And I think what John's saying is God's judgment's going to fall and it's going to be horrific. Hailstones. Where have you seen hailstones and plagues? Egypt. All those plagues get recycled again. All the imagery gets recycled again. And by John using that imagery, John's helping you understand what's it going to be like when God pours his wrath out on this world. It's going to be like that. And he's not necessarily saying it's literally going to be like that, but you read the stories of God humbling Egypt and you say, man, that's horrific. And John's saying this is going to be worse. It's going to be more complete. It's going to be total. It's the last. And with these, the wrath of God is finished. So there's 15 and 16. Let me give you some concluding thoughts of application. And we'll call this good till the fall. Revelation 15, 16 remind us of the sovereignty of God. Clearly. Clearly. In these two chapters. God is in control of everything that happens. There's mighty angels and living creatures, and he's just kind of pointing and telling them where to go. Um, there's this unholy trinity, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Remember, we made the point in 12, 13, 14, they fail at everything they do. Like nothing that they try to do comes to fruition, and they just get stomped in this passage. Uh, his enemies face judgment. He's in control of all the plagues. Look at Revelation 16, verse 9. These people are scorched by the heat. They curse the name of God who had the power over these plagues. He's in complete control, absolute sovereign control of everything that happens in this. Nothing is outside of his control. I read a great book just a couple weeks ago by a guy who lived in the 1600s, a Puritan named Stephen Sharnock. And he says, in talking about God's providence, the title of the book is The Providence of God. He says, my paraphrase, there's not a molecule in all creation that is outside of God's control. His providence and his sovereignty extends over all of it. And you see that in Revelation 15 and 16. God's in complete control. Next, these chapters warn us about the wrath of God. They warn us about the wrath of God. It's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. And it's the kind of stuff that people scoff at in the Old Testament, God being angry at sin and actually doing something about it. And it's so ironic that people say, you know, the Old Testament... God's so mean and grouchy and angry, and then Jesus shows up and it's all great. And to those people, you should just say, have you ever read the book of Revelation? Because when Jesus shows up again, there's going to be a lot of that anger, a lot of that wrath, a lot of that fury, a lot of that justice and judgment being poured out. Um, I gave you a long quote I'm not going to read from Hamilton. It's a great thought experiment, and you ought to spend some time wrestling with it. Here's all I'll say on this issue of God's wrath. People find it odd that God would be angry with sin. People instinctively get angry when someone sins against them. Christians do that and non-Christians do it. Drive down 42nd Street. Cut somebody off intentionally and see how they wave at you. Doesn't matter. I mean, they'll get angry. They'll get mad. Why? Because they feel like you've wronged them. 
Those of you who have kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or spouses or people you care about, if somebody hurts them, you get angry. Rightly, you get angry. Like Human beings instinctively get angry when people wrong us or take from us or hurt people that we care about that are valuable to us, and then this mass of humanity stands in arrogant defiance and looks at God and says, you have no right to be angry at anything that we do. This is just a preposterous inconsistency in a secular worldview that if there's a God, he would not be angry. So uh, these chapters warn us honestly about the wrath of God. These chapters urge us to find hope in the gospel. Hope in the gospel. This quote from Guthrie is amazing. I love it. If all of this wrath and misery have fueled some fear on your part, the truth is you are right to be afraid of the wrath of God. No person in his or her right mind wouldn't fear that wrath, but you don't have to live in that fear. There's a place of safety, a place of protection that's open to you. It's the place where the bowl has already been poured out where the wrath has already been absorbed and thereby extinguished. That's in the person of Jesus. The wrath of God was poured upon Christ so that something very different can be poured out on all who are connected to Him by faith, His love and His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. That's a beautiful thought. Put your faith in Jesus. Believe the gospel. Uh, These chapters motivate us to be part of the people of God. You should want to be part of the people of God when you read these verses. You should not want to be marked among those who have the mark of the beast, those who dwell on the earth, those who follow this unholy trinity. You should want to be part of the people of God. And it's a beautiful thought at the opening part of this vision when you see this sea, right? This separation between God and sinners. And now, unlike a previous chapter, it's intensified, it's mingled with fire. Because God's judgment is about to be poured out. But in the midst of that, there's a people standing right by the sea. And they're singing and they're worshiping and they're praising. And what a beautiful thought to read these chapters and to say, I can fall under these bowls of God's wrath. Or I can be with this group singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. That's an amazing thought. You should want to be part of the people of God. Uh, when you read this and Hamilton says it very simply he says here's what you need to do repent of your sin trust in Christ join a church where the gospel is preached the Bible's explained read your Bible pray walk with God know the Bible read the word through the interpretive grid built for you by the Bible reject the interpretive grid pushed by the world be a student of scripture reflect on life informed by the scriptures that's basic stuff like that's your Sunday school answer from third grade what does it mean to be a Christian believe in Jesus repent of sin Go to church, read your Bible, pray. That's it. That's the whole shooting match. Be part of the people of God. Uh, These chapters, Revelation 15, 16, encourage us to be active in the mission of God. We'll end with this. A lot of times we talk about missions and we think about uh, why do we do missions? We think about the Great Commission. Jesus said to go out and make disciples of all nations. That's a good reason. Um, We think about Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's a pretty good reason to be involved in missions, to give. Uh, 
we think about Romans 10 that says if they don't hear, they can't call on God's name because they can't believe and they can't. That's a pretty good reason to go. Those people have no access to the gospel, so we should go so that they have access to the gospel. But the book of Revelation is literally filled with motivation to go out on mission. Because here's the reality. When you go on a mission trip, a lot of times you come back and you think, was that worth it? I mean, that cost a lot of money and a lot of my vacation. And maybe you didn't go, but you helped somebody go. You sent somebody. Or maybe you did what I asked you to do and you gave a big part of your paycheck to the world missions offering and it goes and it leaves this building and you're left saying well I don't know what could have bought a new car down payment with that or could have bought something nice for my house and you're sort of wondering is it worth it what's the end result and revelation over and over and over again drops these little promises like revelation 15 4 who will not fear O lord and glorify your name for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship you. It's the same idea we saw previously in Revelation where this multitude is gathered around the throne and they come from every nation, every language, every tribe, every people. And when you give to a world missions offering, when you go on a mission trip, when you walk across the street and you tell your neighbor about Jesus, you understand in the end, God will have people from every nation making that sacrifice there's no risk in it there's no risk in it every person you talk to is not going to come to faith in Jesus every person you meet in Kenya or person you share the gospel with is not going to become a Christian but there will be people from every nation every tribe every language gathered before the throne and John promises it again here when he talks about all these nations will come and they will worship so it's Revelation 15 and 16. We're on break for the summer, break for June and July, and we'll be back in August. We'll do August, September, October, and we'll end in November uh, with the end of Revelation. So I'll pray for us and let you get out of here. Father, we love you. We're grateful for your word. And uh, we thank you for telling us what you're like and what we can expect in the end. Um, you are a just God and all your ways are righteous and they're true and they're good and they're amazing. Uh, Lord, forgive us when we are squeamish or embarrassed about what you have revealed about yourself uh, and help us to understand that uh, your anger towards sin is a good thing uh, and it's something that you ought to be praised for. Father, as your people, uh, we acknowledge that we deserve uh, the judgments of these bowls and these plagues to be poured out on our heads. And we just stop to thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ drank the cup of your wrath uh, and that he said it was finished and that the salvation he secured for us is complete and that we do not have to live in fear of these judgments uh, even as we tremble in the light of these realities. Lord, we pray that these truths would motivate us to worship and to pray and to be men who lead our families and our church uh, to be active on mission, sharing the gospel, making disciples, confident that you have people in every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. God, go with us as we leave. Uh, we pray that you would reconvene us and bring us back in the fall to finish this uh, study of Revelation. Uh, 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.